40 days of Lent pick up a, a symbol of 40 in the Bible and uh, in Islam as well. It's a, a term, it's a, it's a length of time that is associated with um, a testing period, a probation period. Um, maybe with difficulties and challenges, but you sort of graduate after 40 days. So the, the Israelites wandered 40 days in the desert, um, and Moses spent 40 days up at the top of <coughs> Mount Horeb where he was getting the, Mount Sinai where he was getting the uh, Ten Commandments. So the 40 days uh, of Lent pick up that symbolism but also, in particular, the, the uh, story of Jesus being in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights after his baptism and as a preparation for his uh, public life, his public teaching. So a time of purification, a time of getting ready, a time of perhaps getting to know himself and coming to a the kind of authority that self-knowledge uh, gives us. So, what I'd like to do this evening is, is having welcomed you really, is hope that you feel the spirit of Bombo and feel, feel the welcome that we want to share with you here in the community. But what I'd like to do this evening is reflect a little bit on meditation itself. Many of you, perhaps all of you, have started the journey of meditation, or maybe started it and stopped it, uh, like most of us have done. Um, so I'd like to speak about meditation and, and speak about the practice, particular practice that we, we follow and teach here at Bombo. Um, the best way to start that, I think, talking about meditation, is with these words. If meditation was a color, it would be yellow. Because when I see the color yellow, I am all of a sudden so happy. Meditation does that too. If meditation was a sunflower, sorry, if meditation was a flower, it would be a sunflower. It just sits in the sun all day, just being itself. Time flies because there's nowhere else you want to be. Who do you think wrote that? Who do you think wrote that? <laughs> Who wrote that, I said? So, have a guess. I think, wow, these beautiful children. Yeah. You've heard it before. No. So, so it's, a, it's a child, an 11-year-old child. Uh, and it goes on, he, he, she goes on to say, When our class meditates, we are like a field of sunflowers on a sunny summer's day. Yes. Children can Yes, children can meditate at the age of four or five. We, we recommend that they meditate one minute per year, one minute per year of their age. Uh, maybe when you begin, maybe they start with one minute or two minutes, but they very quickly, especially in a classroom setting, they very quickly uh, get to one minute per year of their age, so 11 minutes. And because children, you know when you're getting old because you would like to be younger. But children always like to be older. So if you say to a child, when you're 11, or when you're 11, you can meditate for 11 minutes, and the child will say, but I'm almost 11. <laughs> so, and the wonderful gift of teaching meditation to children is that they teach you from by their response, by their 
simplicity, of course, by their silence and stillness during the meditation. The teachers and parents are usually amazed. Pat can witness to this because she's has a special project in, in Scotland teaching meditation there, so she can talk about that one evening. So, <clears throat> um, do we teach children to meditate? Yes, in the same way you might teach children how to eat properly or how to walk or how to, you know, write or something. But it's in them already. This gift is present in us. It's not, it's not a knowledge we have to learn, it's a gift we have to receive and practice. Now, the older you are when you come to meditation, of course, the less simple you are, and the more meditation seems like a challenge or something very complicated. And uh, it's amazing how people become so complicated about meditation and sophisticated. And we write, of course, long books on the states of consciousness and level and how we analyze the nature of the mind. We'll do a little bit of that tomorrow, just to give us a map of the journey that we make. But um, a lot of people, you know, want to understand the nature of the mind and all of the meaning of meditation analytically, even before they begin a regular practice. So they've written two PhDs on meditation before they actually sit down to meditate sometimes. So children <coughs> give us a very direct teaching on the simplicity of meditation. Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, which was his code word for enlightenment, for our true nature, for the full development of our human potential to know and love God. He said, if you, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like a little child. So, by the time we get to a certain age, uh, I was with some students at a university a few days ago, and these were, these were fairly young people, uh, after graduation, but, and uh, they were not simple anymore. They were complicated, troubled, anxious, many of them suffering various kinds of mental illness, suffering insomnia, perfectly normal young executives. Okay. So, it isn't long before we lose this simplicity of childhood, and then we often come to meditation because we want to find a way to deal with stress. And the benefits of meditation have been studied and scientifically since since about, well, 1931 was the first uh, recorded scientific study of meditation. And since then, there have been hundreds, thousands of, of uh, research projects. And <clears throat> all of these research projects basically agree that meditation produces uh, very beneficial results, both at the psychological level and at the physical level. So, when we find ourselves in need of meditation at a later point in our life, when we're looking for peace, when we're looking for healing, we're looking for meaning in our life, and we're dealing with uh, maybe a great deal of suffering, when we come to meditation, hoping for these benefits, we, we are finding something that is simple, but it seems difficult and complicated and esoteric or, you know, very sophisticated uh, because we are not simple. So the first thing that John Main uh, tells us about meditation is 
is its simplicity. It's not that we are simple, but meditation is simple. And so to practice something that is simple simplifies us. So it brings us to that childlike state in which we can know and enter the kingdom of God. So, um, just a word about uh, John Main and how he came to meditation, because this is the, this is, he, he came into a tradition that, that uh, led to the development of our community around the world and, and to Bon Vaux. So John Main was, was born in uh, England, Irish family, in 1926. And after he had graduated as a lawyer, he joined the uh, diplomatic service and he, was, he learned Chinese and was sent to Malaya, as it then was. And Malaya at that time was in a, a very uh, violent and dangerous uh, state, civil war going on. And one day he was sent to visit an Indian monk who <coughs> had contributed a lot to a reconciliation between the different fighting ethnic and religious groups and had set up an orphanage uh, for the children uh, left uh, orphaned by the, by the war. And he was, uh, John Main was sent to visit this monk in order to thank him for the work that he had been doing for peace in that troubled world. But after being with him for some time, he realized he was in the presence not only of a very compassionate and actively compassionate person, but also of a very deep spirit, a very wise and centered person. And so uh, they started talking about spiritual matters because John Main was a religious man, a spiritual man, a Catholic. And after a while, the monk asked him, uh, are you a religious person? And John Main said, yes, I am a Christian. And then he said, do you pray? And he said, yes, I pray. And he described the way of prayer that probably most, of, most Western Christians are most familiar with, which is mental prayer, or maybe a prayer of worship, external prayer. And so, prayer using words, prayer using the imagination, and so on. So the monk listened to this and said, well, that's excellent that you, you are a man of prayer. He said, when we pray, we also pray in a way that we call meditation, that is uh, deeper than words. We don't use words. We don't use images, concepts. And he began to describe the way of meditation uh, that they, they taught. And he described how they sit down and lay aside their thoughts, let go of their thoughts, the stream of consciousness that um, we are constantly uh, carrying within our, within our minds, within our heads. And he said, we, we let go of our thoughts by taking a word, a mantra, and we repeat this word or verse, the same word, continuously during the time of the meditation. And we keep returning to the word when we get distracted and when uh, we come to meditation, morning and evening, we stay with the same word. So John Wayne listened to this very intently. He could feel that it was coming from someone who was speaking from experience, from depth. He wasn't selling him anything. He wasn't trying to recruit him. He was just sharing something of the wisdom that he belonged to. And uh, John Main was also felt, felt there's something familiar about this. 
The idea of repetition in prayer is quite common in most religions. Um, but at the same time, something a little different, because it was very radical simplicity. <clears throat> and then the monk quoted a verse from the Upanishads that they, which described why they did this. Because, as he said, in the, in, the, in the heart, in the deepest center of the heart, there is this little space, and in this little space there is everything. There is the cosmos. And they meditated, he said, because in the human heart, the spirit of the one who created the universe dwells within us in love and in silence is loving to all. It's a verse from one of the Upanishads. And John May was, was very moved by this because it also evoked his memory and his idea of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. So he said to the monk, could you teach me as a Christian to meditate? And of course the monk said, yes, of course, it will make you a better Christian. You don't, didn't have to leave his own tradition in order to meditate. And he said, but, he said, yes, I can teach you, but, you know, I'm a busy man, running the orphanage and involved in lots of things in this troubled society. But I, if, you're, if you are serious about it, I, I, I will teach you. And he said, uh, so John Main said, what do you mean by serious? So serious meant doing it. And he said, to be serious, you would have to meditate twice a day, morning and evening, for about half an hour. If you can do that, and you want to do that, then you can come and meditate with me once a week. And I've been back many times to this, this uh, temple, where, the Temple of the Universal Spirit in Kuala Lumpur, where John Main learned to meditate. And um, he said, I will uh, I'll, I'll meditate with you. And if you have any questions, you can raise them. So John Main accepted this and went away and began to meditate, integrated it with his normal <coughs> times of prayer every morning, every evening. And once a week, he'd come back to his teacher. They'd meditate together. And after the meditation, uh, sometimes he said at the beginning he would ask all these kind of questions how long is this going to take uh, what should I be feeling why am I so distracted uh, so he would ask these questions that everyone asks or faces in the first learning period of learning to meditate so the uh, he said that maybe exaggerating a bit, but he said every time he would ask one of these these sort of uh, rather naive questions, the monk would either just uh, smile at him uh, or he would say, say your mantra. And many years later, just before John Main died, when he was in Montreal, uh, starting a new community there, which led to the world community, uh, he gave a, a talk on uh, meditation to beginners and he described this, this uh, story of his own initiation and he said um, these three words, say your mantra, were the wisest words he had ever heard about prayer. So he continued to meditate when he returned to, to Europe, became a professor of law, then eventually became a monk, a Benedictine monk himself. And then when he became a monk, this was in, in the 1950s, um, no one had heard about meditation uh, as something that could be part of this tradition. So he was advised to stop meditating. 
And he did, for a number of years. And then, when he was in the States in the, early, in the late 60s, when uh, the world was falling apart and uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the church was being shaken to its foundations, he was led back to, this, to the practice of meditation, now through his own Christian tradition, by uh, discovering or rediscovering the teachings of the early Christian monks who were called the, the desert, the fathers and mothers of the desert. And this was a movement, it was a lay movement uh, in the third, fourth, fifth centuries. Uh, it was an enormously fertile and vibrant movement of uh, people who went out to live lives of radical simplicity um, in, the, in, the, in desert conditions, either in community or in solitude. And the wisdom of the desert has, has produced a spirituality that is still very much at the heart of, of the church's teaching, and I think a very contemporary spirituality for people today, because it's a spirituality based not so much upon dogma, and belief as upon uh, experience and transformation. These people, these early monks who were not priests or nuns in our sense of the word, they went, they were lay, lay people, they went out into the desert to be transformed, to find themselves and to open themselves to that spirit of God dwelling deep in their hearts. And they were prepared to spend their 40 days or 40 years, however long it took, uh, for this work to be completed. So this wisdom of the desert, of the Christian desert, was transmitted to the, down the centuries to St. Benedict and then down to our own day, especially through the writings of a great monk called John Cassian. And in the 10th conference, of his tenth, his tenth conference, John Cassian speaks about prayer, about the practice of prayer, not the theory, but the practice. And what he actually teaches is meditation, as we know it, as we practice it and teach it. Um, and <coughs> it was a even at that time, it seems, it, had a, it was some, somewhat controversial because there was, a, there was a group of monks in the desert who, um, who objected to this and said that this was not real prayer, this was not Christian prayer, just as you might find today uh, in churches, people who will say this is Buddhism, this is not Christianity, and so on. And he has a, a story at the beginning of this 10th conference of one of these monks called Serapion, who was an old monk famous for his holiness and his aesthetical uh, rigor, a uh, famous old monk of the desert, very highly respected. And he describes entering into a debate with this old monk about meditation or pure prayer, as he called it. Pure because it was purified of images and ideas and the ego. And eventually, Serapion was persuaded. This old monk let, changed. He let go of his objections and he saw the light and he, he, he started to meditate. And there's a beautiful story of Serapion joining a group of his fellow monks who were now meditating in this way. And then in the middle of the meditation, Serapion gave out a loud cry. I hope it doesn't happen in the chapel here, while we're here. He gave out a loud cry and fell on the ground, <coughs> weeping. 
And he said, he cried out, They have taken my God away from me, and I have no one left to, to call to. And then the story says that the other monks in the circle comforted him and brought him back into the prayer, into the meditation with, him, with them. So however that happened, I mean, the meaning of the story is fairly clear, simple, <coughs> that even if we are intellectually persuaded about meditation, it is still difficult when we come to it later in life. It's simple, but it's not easy. And if we're religious, it can be even more difficult because we have to let go of certain ideas of God, certain ideas about prayer, about our relationship to God, the meaning of prayer. And when that happens, as we let go of familiar uh, ideas about prayer, we can feel very dry. We can feel we're losing something. And for religious people, this is why they often find meditation very difficult or, or, or object to it. Sometimes it's easier for people without a religious background to come to it for that very reason. So in any case, Cassian um, goes on to describe this way of meditation, which in practical terms was the same, very similar, to the way that the Indian monk had taught him uh, many years before in Malay. Take, uh, Cassian recommended taking a verse from the Psalms and repeating this verse continually in the mind and heart, laying aside <coughs> all the riches of thought and imagination. And thereby, he says, coming to the first of the Beatitudes, poverty of spirit. So now John Main had been led back to the practice of meditation, but led back to it in the terms and the language and in, the, in his own Christian, of his own Christian tradition. And Cassian then goes on to describe at some length the various states of mind, maybe not as detailed as the Buddhists would, but fairly similar, to the various states of mind that you will pass through as you make this journey, as you make meditation part of your life. And then he, he, he emphasizes that the, 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 the word, he calls it in Latin, a formula, uh, the mantra, will sink into the heart. So by constant repetition, by regular practice, it sinks into the heart, and so it accompanies you throughout the day. Whether you're walking through the desert, whether you're you know, on a retreat here at Bombo, or you're waiting you know, in the, at a dentist's, or you're you know, on a train, you'll find that the mantra will very naturally, spontaneously arise in your heart and link your surface mind to your deep mind of the heart. And this, this is a wonderful gift of, of continuous prayer, as, as it was called, pure prayer. And it reminds us that the essential nature of prayer is not our prayer, our praying to God, asking God for things, telling God what's happening, and so on. Those are other forms of prayer. But the essential form of prayer, or the essence of prayer, is entering into the mind of Christ for the Christian. Entering into the flow of the Spirit that we find in that tiny space which contains the cosmos in our heart. And therefore, the, the daily practice of meditation allows that uh, 
that constant flow, that river of prayer to well up in us and, and fill us continuously. And when I speak to those uh, students I was mentioning and I hear with great sadness about the struggle that they have sometimes just to survive, just to get up in the morning, how to deal with stress, how to deal with loneliness, how to deal with their fear of failure, with competitiveness, uh, and so on. And the many physical aspects of, uh, and psychological aspects related to that. I, and many of them, of course, will say they're on medication. Uh, <clears throat> some, of, some of them in the States on medication since they were very young. And I think really, and I say to them, you know, prayer of this kind, the prayer of the heart, meditation, gives us access to this, to this fundamental life of, the, of our own spirit within us. And it isn't complicated, and it isn't certainly impossible for us, for any of us, to uncover this. Wherever we're coming from, obviously, if you've got a lot of baggage or you have a lot of, a lot of resistance or a lot of fear, then it's going to be more difficult. And you're going to need those other people in the circle, like Serapian, to, <laughs> to comfort you and to help you to continue. That's why meditation creates community. But um, there is no pill yet invented by any pharmaceutical company that can reproduce this experience of joy and peace that wells up from the, the spring of the spirit in our own heart. And that description I read from this 11-year-old girl uh, expresses it very beautifully. And this is what another little girl says. Meditation brings me inside myself. It feels like it is somewhere deep inside. I can't describe the feeling. I can't compare it to anything else. It feels like you were just thinking. Well, not thinking, but just sitting there. I'm not thinking about what's going to happen next. It's like I'm in a bubble. It feels like there is nothing around me. And I feel like I am in freedom. Imagine a picture of a path curving into a wood. Meditation is like walking along that path into an empty dream. You don't know what's in there, but you want to go in, and you know it will be safe. So when we speak about meditation, we have to, I think, constantly be reminded of the simplicity of it, and also that we don't meditate only for the, the medical benefits, to relax, to de-stress. These are byproducts, they're useful, of course, byproducts of meditation. <coughs> but we actually meditate because this is what we are made for. This is the most natural thing we can do that opens the source, the spring of our consciousness, the heart, opens the heart and therefore allows the spirit in us to infiltrate and pervade every part of ourselves and of our, of our life. So, so the first thing, as I said, is to understand the simplicity of meditation 
The second is to be aware that it is part of a great tradition. We're not consumers. We're not, you know, 21st century consumers buying a new technique. We are actually entering into a, a wisdom, a, a river of wisdom, which is flowing through history. Uh, as far back as we can see, meditation is, is part of the, at the heart of all the great uh, religious traditions and wisdom, uh, families of wisdom. We don't meditate just because of what we believe. Meditation, when we meditate, in a sense we're laying aside our beliefs, our belief systems as well. It doesn't mean to say we're rejecting them, but it means, for example, that we're not thinking about God, or speaking to God, or imagining God for religious people. And if you were a non-religious person with a secular or scientific belief system, at the same time, you're not just trying to explain everything that happens to you in scientific language or terms. So we lay aside our beliefs when we meditate. By saying the mantra, we are letting go of thoughts, concepts, words, imagination. Not easy. But as Cassian says, it brings us to poverty of spirit. And I hope that you know, during this retreat and during the 40 days of Lent that follow, uh, we will all have a better understanding of what poverty of spirit means. Because that's the real purpose of Lent, is to understand the meaning of that uh, fundamental idea uh, in our own experience. It's the first thing Jesus says about happiness or beatitude. Happy or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So we'll come back to why Cassian links the mantra of meditation to poverty of spirit. He also goes on at the end of that great conference to say that when he was introduced to meditation by, by the old monk who was teaching him, he was, um, he was really excited because he was complaining, my mind is always distracted. Here I am, out in the middle of the desert, you know, no Wi-Fi here, no entertainment, and I'm still distracted. I'm thinking about all the things I did when I was in the city or, you know. So just like us, but I mean, we're about a million times more distracted uh, than they were, but the same principle. So he says, and if I'm so distracted, how can I pray? How can I get to that place in the heart if my mind is just teeming and overflowing with thoughts and words and images and imagination and fantasies and ideas. And so, he said, I was really pleased to be given this simple method of laying aside my thoughts and entering into poverty of spirit. And he said, I started with great enthusiasm because we thought it would be a short and easy method. So we'd get instant results. We'd all be enlightened, you know, within a week. But we found it even harder to practice, he said, than the other ways of prayer that they had practiced before, which was using the mind uh, <clears throat> to think, read scripture, and to think about, about their beliefs. But then he said, he said, actually, one of the fruits of this way of meditation for him that he felt very quickly was the fact that they could read scripture at other times in a different way, with much greater insight and perception 
and with, as if he says, I had written these words myself. As if I was, I was the author of them. So what was happening clearly was that an experience was awakening in him that was the same experience that was being described in the scriptures. So there was that feeling of connection or reflection. He was being reflected in the scripture. And then he went on to say, it is certain that no one is excluded from this, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, no one is excluded from this experience because they can't read, because they're not educated, because they're not clever or sophisticated. No one is blocked from coming to this poverty of spirit or purity of heart because this experience is close at hand to everyone provided we can learn to pay attention. And the essence of prayer in this sense is attention. And this is this is a very contemporary way as well as a traditional way of understanding the purpose of the mantra. We sit down, we sit still, we close our eyes, and we begin to repeat our word. And as we repeat the word, of course, within seconds, we become distracted. And you may find yourself lost in thinking about yourself, <coughs> analyzing your life, planning where you're what you're going to do next, imagining, fantasizing, solving problems, all the things we, we tend to do and our minds are just wandering. So you may get <coughs> lost in that state of distraction and many kinds of distraction, but you may get lost in that for the whole, you know, nearly the whole of the meditation at first. So you may be discouraged and say, oh, this is, I'm no good at this, you know, I'm not, I can't do it. Well, that's where you need a few people to gather around you and hold you together and, and encourage you to, to come back to it. Because, as Cassian says, no one is excluded from this. It's as natural as those children knew it to be. Just some of us have to push a little harder to get through the, the blockages. So, and the, the beautiful thing about the simplicity of meditation in this way is that it's not, not that it's easy, but that you can do it, provided you have the right approach, the right attitude. If you have a perfectionist attitude to it, in other words, you think you ought to do it perfectly and blank out the mind and somehow or other have no thoughts, then you're going to be very disappointed and probably give up and try something easier. But if you can let go of that perfectionist or achievement uh, mentality, you'll find something very wonderful. That even though you are a lousy meditator, a very distracted meditator, nevertheless, you know that you are making the journey. And you are, will become more and more amazed at what the journey is teaching you. So it's as if, when we begin to meditate, our minds are filled uh, you know, we discover that we're in a jungle. Our minds are like a jungle with uh, tremendous, you know, undergrowth and, and thick jungle and chattering of monkeys and birds and insects. And, but then you find a tiny little path in front of you 
and this narrow little path is your focus of attention. This is what you're treading, this is what you're walking as you say the mantra. And each time you say the mantra, you're taking another little step on this path. Think of what that little girl said. You don't know where you're going, but it, you, 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 you know that it's a good place. And um, then you get distracted. You find yourself lost in the jungle again. But as soon as you realize that you are off the path, in the jungle, in your daydreams, you drop the thoughts, even if they're good thoughts, you drop the thought and you come back to the mantra. And so you discover that you are never more than one step away from that path. It is near at hand, as, as Cassian says. And as Jesus says about the kingdom of God, it is near at hand. So we are never more than one step away from it. We just have to have the humility to drop the thought and come back to the path, to that focal point of attention. And of course, our, our quality of the spirit of attention uh, deepens and strengthens with the practice of meditation. And that's one of the first most powerful fruits of meditation is that you become more conscious, more awake, and more capable of paying attention. Less in your head, less distracted, less focused just upon your own inner stream of thoughts. So, <clears throat> Uh, choosing the word is important because we stay with the same word as Cassian describes, as John Main was taught. You stay with the same word from the beginning to the end of the meditation and from day to day. And that allows the, the word to, to sink, take root in the heart, and we'll look at some of the stages that that happens, that that takes. So the word we recommend uh, is the word Maranatha. It's an Aramaic word. The ancient Christian prayer means come Lord. But we're not asking the Lord to come. We're not thinking about the meaning of it as we say it. We're saying the word whole and entire, simple, simply, and listening to it as a sound. Because this word, although it's a sacred word, in its meaning, it also has a sound and a rhythm that makes it easy, easier to, to say and to come back to. That's not the only word you could, you could choose, but for these reasons, it's the one we recommend. Similarly, I'm not saying this is the only way to heaven. If you, if, you know, people, you, you feel this is too narrow a path for you, and you have a better way, then you, that's fine. No one's, no one's going to blame you. We should never criticize, never get angry with another person's way of prayer. But we, the reason we, we teach this, share it, the reason it's it spread, I suppose, in the community around the world, is that it has a very powerful quality, which is, first of all, its simplicity. It brings us to that childlike state. And secondly, that it's universal. We find this kind of teaching on meditation everywhere. And it doesn't exclude other forms of prayer, doesn't compete with other uh, spiritual teachings. Uh, so everyone is free to, to follow it uh, as, they, as they like. But it has this great universal quality, which means it offers us some hope also in a world that is so divided and so 
conflict with itself, but here is, here is, some, here is a way that we can sit with people of other faiths or people of no faith, uh, seekers or those who are, have found what you know, the place where they want to, to find. <coughs> it can create, in other words, a community of faith out of people of different beliefs. There's a difference between faith and belief. We'll come back to that later. And this is, this is something of great social and political importance for us today. To find a way in which, in a world where we often not only disagree with people, but that disagreement becomes violent and disrespectful and more and more even in, in politics and in religious affairs, you find that the, you, there are people who don't only disagree with the other side, but say you don't have the right to exist. <coughs> you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be there, you're so wrong that you should be wiped out. And we see that either, you know, happening in fact or, you know, being, 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 uh, being taught in, in more and more frequently. So here in meditation, we have a, a way of finding that fundamental unity of human beings, the fundamental goodness of human beings, uh, at the deepest level, and that's not a it's not an ideological discovery. It's a, a spiritual discovery, and it's a human discovery because we find that we can then sit and be and respect other people, be with and respect other people, uh, even though we disagree with them very strongly. So, so this is the this is the way of meditation that we. We follow from the tradition, but open to its manifestations in other traditions, of course, as John Main himself was at the beginning of his, of his own personal journey. <clears throat>